Welcome, everybody, to the Braille Institute's Let's Talk Low Vision type of program. And my name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and I'm the Consulting Director of Low Vision Education at the Braille Institute and also the Chief of Low Vision at the Center for the, uh, Center for the Partially Sighted uh, in Los Angeles, California. And it's really, really a, a real pleasure tonight that we have Dr. Cal Tawanzi, who is a pediatric retina specialist and the founder of the Children's Retina Institute in Los Angeles, California here, to talk to us about some of the things about different retinal conditions of children. So welcome, Dr. Tawanzi. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me here, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yes, you know, the last time that you were with us, we did talk quite a bit about retinopathy of prematurity, and we had a lot of requests to have that lecture repeated. But we also yeah. have a lot of other questions where people are asking about other kinds of retinal diseases. So um, would okay. you basically just start out by just telling the audience a little bit about what is the retina? We often know that term, but what is it and what is the function of the retina? Sure. Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I usually ask patients to think of the eye as a camera. And if the eye were a camera... The retina would be the film of the camera. It's what it's the it's the organ that senses the light and basically transforms light into an electric signal and sends that signal to the brain for visual processing. So it it's a nine layered structure um, that is uh, uh, like a thin membrane that's located on the back of the eye. It's an extension of the central nervous system, and it has uh, these different cellular layers, including the photoreceptor layer, which captures the light signal, and then there are several other layers that communicate with the photoreceptors and process that light signal and um, send it, send that signal sort of electronically through, uh, you know, electronic connections between cells um, through the optic nerve, which is the cable uh, connecting the eyes to the brain. Uh, it's, it's actually the most metabolically active tissue in the body, and it relies on uh, two circulations, the choroidal circulation on the uh, uh, outer part and the retinal circulation within its inner part, that's important because there are many diseases that affect these, these uh, circulations that, that manifest as, as retinal diseases, for example, retinopathy of prematurity. And it's also important to note that the retina sits on a pigment layer, the pigment epithelium, which supports the retina, and there's a potential space there um, so that fluid, if fluid accumulates uh, underneath the retina, that, that leads to retinal detachment, which is one of the potentially, uh, you know, visual, visually disabling conditions that we try to treat and prevent. Yeah, and, uh, you know, so in a lot of ways, we could almost think of the retina as being a nine-layered thin piece of wallpaper that's on, on the wall of an igloo in some respect. That's exactly right, uh, and 
it, it's, uh, it's, it's sitting there, uh, you know, wallpaper is, is stuck to the wall by glue. Well, retina is stuck to the, to the pigment layer, uh, not by glue, but by certain inter interdigitations between the photoreceptors and the pigment layer and other uh, uh, fluid forces that suck fluid out, between, you know, underneath that space. And um, there is some form of uh, uh, chemical glue uh, that also helps to hold things together. But, but just the way wallpaper can come off a drywall, you can get a blister that can expand uh, on your wallpaper that can separate from the, from the drywall, so can the retina become detached from uh, its pigment layer underneath it. And, and uh, much of our surgical uh, work and, and our interventions are designed to prevent that problem from developing retinal detachment uh, because obviously that's what uh, can lose can cause the retina to lose its function uh, and, and you end up with loss of visual field or visual acuity. Now, in the retina itself, um, there's basically two geographic areas. I know that you talked about in our last lecture, the, the center, the bullseye area that has the cone cells and mm -hmm. the area that surrounds the bullseye being the rod cells. Can you talk about the difference between those two sections? Why do we have sure. two different sections there? Yes. Well, um, you know, in, in, in humans and other animals that are called foveate animals, in other words, they have a macula, um, what ha the, the way the, the architecture is organized, the central part of the retina uh, is called the macula, and that area is responsible for the sharpest vision in terms of visual acuity, in terms of being able to read. Uh, it's also responsible for a lot of the vision when, when uh, under, under bright uh, conditions, under bright light ambient conditions. And it's also uh, important for color vision. And so that central area called the macula is, is also, is kind of the area between the major vascular arcades, the major uh, emanating blood vessels that emanate, emanate from the optic nerve, and um, uh, on the temporal side, and, and that area uh, has more con higher concentration of, of photo uh, of, of photoreceptors, and those tend to be cone uh, photoreceptors uh, that have a that that more specific function for for acuity and color and um, vision under illuminated circumstances. Um, the, and the architecture there is a little bit different than the rest of the retina because it's less cellular. Uh, there, there's less, less of the processing cells and more of the photoreceptor cells. So, you know, we had mentioned cone dystrophy. Um, cone dystrophy is a condition that predominantly affects the cone cells uh, in the central retina, so you lose, you, you know, you lose your central reading uh, ability with that condition. Um, but that condition is uh, is also associated with some loss of, of the other type of cells, which is the rods. Now the rods 
are the other type of photoreceptors, and they're more in the periphery of the retina. And uh, there's a lot, uh, they, they occupy a lot bigger area of the retina, and they're responsible for vision under dim circumstances and for uh, the visual field and for things like detecting motion in the periphery. So, so like if you're reading under bright illumination, you're predominantly using your cone centrally, whereas if you're driving in the dark and you're looking uh, at, at uh, you know, objects coming in from the side, you're more relying on your rods. And, um, you know, that, uh, there are diseases that can affect one or the other or, or both. Okay, so great. So generally that within this very thin retina, the very center, the bullseye area, has the cone cells and gives us the detailed vision, the color vision, and our daylight vision, and the entire area surrounding it is the rod cells that gives us our night vision, our motion vision, and our peripheral vision. Now, um, when we talk about uh, retinopathy of prematurity, that is the most common retinal condition of children, can you tell us uh, what that is? How did, how did children get this retinopathy of prematurity? Okay, well, it's, a, it's an important disease. Um, it's, um, it's the leading preventable and treatable cause of blindness in children uh, in, in countries that are uh, able to sustain premature babies uh, like the United States. And there's currently uh, kind of a third a worldwide epidemic occurring in retinopathy and prematurity in countries that are now evolving, modernizing their uh, ability to uh, sustain, sustain preemies in the NICU, like China and, and India, for example. And this condition was, uh, you know, first recognized around 1950, um, but it's probably been around for, for much longer than that. It has to do with the way the retinal vasculature uh, develops. Um, I mentioned that there's two circulations, the choroidal circulation and the retinal uh, circulation. The choroidal circulation forms very early in life, and by the second trimester, it's pretty much developed. Whereas the retinal circulation, it, it takes longer to develop. It starts to form at the center of the optic nerve, and it, it grows out uh, radially from the optic nerve to the periphery. So if you can imagine a round circle with a dot in the middle, the dot in the middle being the optic nerve, the retinal blood vessels start at that dot, and at each clock hour, they grow out. They're, they're, they're trying to reach the, the periphery of the circle. And normally, uh, that, that development occurs in sort of a biphasic pattern. Uh, the first phase is, is called vasculogenesis, and it's pre-programmed to occur based on neurologic signaling between cells. And then the second phase is called angiogenesis, and for the vessels to form, they have to be metabolically stimulated to, to develop. And what the way that happens is that they have to be in a low oxygen environment. 
as it, as it occurs inside the womb. The low oxygen uh, situation causes the cell to, to crave oxygen and then they, they uh, produce growth factors that cause the vessels to grow to the periphery. And that growth all the way to the periphery, you know, the, the vessels don't usually reach the periphery until around the due date or shortly thereafter. So if a child is born prematurely, then they may be exposed to higher levels of oxygen, either in the ambient air or if they require additional oxygen on a ventilator or through a face mask to sustain them because their lungs are immature, they may require some additional oxygen. Well, that oxygen gets um, diffuses throughout the body and reaches the retina. And, it, and when it reaches the retina that's developing, it, it, uh, it, it changes the biochemical environment in which those cells are secreting growth factors. And so the cells now are not deprived of oxygen anymore. And it, so they feel, uh, you can imagine the cells no longer have a stimulus to grow. And so it stops the, the growth of the retinal circulation uh, for a period of time. And that period, uh, that, that, that time is called basal obliteration. And it occurs within the first uh, four to six weeks of birth. And so during that time period, it's, uh, it's very critical to monitor the oxygen administration very carefully to try to minimize the suppression of the retinal vascular growth. So that's kind of the first phase of the ROP process. Um, and then it, when you have stunted, stunted blood vessel growth, that can lead to the second phase. And during the second phase, uh, you have a, a situation where the retina is increasing its metabolic activity because the child is now reaching uh, the due date or, uh, or close to the due date, at, at which time they're opening their eyes and, and the, the retina is now starting to function more. And as it's functioning, um, it's, short of, it's short of circulation in the periphery. And so the, the retina now realizes that it's not getting enough nutrition and consequently, some more growth factors start to be produced. And in some cases, those growth factors will cause normal growth of, of blood vessels so that the, blood vessel, the normal vessels continue to grow all the way to the periphery. And so you just have a child in that situation where the, 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 the vascular development was delayed, but there was no significant problem. But in other cases, the growth factors might go sort of awry, and instead of the, the blood vessels growing uh, within the retina, the vessels start to grow uh, uh, outside the retina into the vitreous gel, and the vessels start to communicate with, with one another to form a shunt or a... Or a sort of a, you know, a direct communication between arteries and, and veins without the normal intervening capillary network. And so in that situation, 
you have abnormal blood vessels forming, and these blood vessels are not, they're not nutritive to the retina. They don't nourish the retina. Instead, they, um, they can extend outside of the retina into the jelly cavity, and they can bleed, and they can contract. And when they contract, they can lift the retina from its normal position, so it, it causes a retinal detachment. In other words, the wallpaper is coming off the drywall, uh, and that's the process by which children lose vision in retinopathy and prematurity. Wow, that's really, really a very complex process that, you know, many times people don't know that that's happening. Now, right. uh, is it routine Is it routine for all children who are born premature that they have a retina specialist come into the hospital and check them for this disease? Yes, that's a mandate. Uh, that's the standard of care throughout the United States and throughout the world. Uh, any child who is born uh, prematurely, and the criteria that we generally use is if they're born... Uh, under 3,200, uh, I'm sorry, under 32 weeks gestation at the time of birth, or or if their birth weight is under 1,500 grams, or if they have a particularly stormy course in the NICU, so, such that they require a lot of uh, support, uh, a lot of uh, you know transfusions and a lot of ventilation and uh, become very ill, acidotic, or septic, and that's another criteria that we use to screen children. So uh, a bedside examination is performed by someone with, with, with expertise in retinopathy or prematurity. It's usually either a pediatric retina specialist like myself or a, pe- a general pediatric ophthalmologist or a general retina specialist. And... So those children are looked at very carefully and at intervals to, to ensure that the vessels are not growing in a, in, a, in a bad way that could lead to retinal detachment. Now, you, you had mentioned that, again, when the child is born premature, the retina blood vessels are not fully developed, and when they suddenly have a, a low level of oxygen after the oxygen has been removed, these new blood vessels tend to grow at what phase or what week time period does the child need to be seen? Do they need to have this examination every week, or is there a particular time period that you would you would stop and see them less frequently? Right. So the standard of care is to begin doing eye exams at four weeks of age because retinopathy of prematurity does not form before then, um, or uh, if the child uh, reaches 32 weeks uh, post-conception and they were born under uh, under 26 or so weeks uh, at gestation, then, then there, sometimes there, the, the first exam is delayed until 32 weeks. But generally, I recommend the first exam to be done at four weeks of age. And then subsequent exams are done every week or two, depending on the findings. 
if a child has no evidence of ROP, then the child is examined every two weeks until the retinal vessels mature. They, they form all the way to the periphery, in which case they, they, no, they are no longer at risk for developing retinopathy and prematurity. If, if the child has some features of retinopathy and prematurity or some high-risk signs, like, for example, the vessels are very posterior, or if there are retained fetal vessels, or if there's some early forms of ROP, like stage 1 or 2, or if there's uh, plus disease, meaning that the blood vessels are dilated and tortuous, which is um, a sign that the eyes starve for oxygen, then those exams are done on a weekly basis, and sometimes even more frequently than that, every as, as often as every every day or every other day, depending on the severity of the situation. Okay, so basically, uh, if a child is born prematurely, let's say the child is born after 26 weeks gestation, the first retinal exam should come at four weeks after the child has been born, or at 30 yes. weeks post gestation. That's right. And what the amazing thing is, and we see this all the time from your patients that you send to us, is that we're not seeing as many children with ROP who are blind anymore. These kids have great vision. Yeah, well, no, no question that over the past decade, uh, since I've been in Los Angeles, you know, there, there's been a concerted uh, effort to, uh, to both prevent uh, ROP and also to, to recognize it early and intervene early uh, before retinal detachment occurs. So, um, you know, the screening protocols have, have become refined and the vigilance on the part of the screening examiners has increased and simultaneously the NICUs have learned how to better manage oxygen to minimize the toxicity that occurs in the first six weeks of life uh, to keep the oxygen levels lower and to to keep keep them more stable. So all of that has reduced the uh, the incidence of severe ROP. There's also been studies now uh, using early uh, early intervention with laser when 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 the retinopathy gets to a certain level of severity, uh, the, the, the typical first intervention is with laser, uh, and that's been shown to be very effective in reducing uh, those, those abnormal blood vessels and preventing retinal detachment. And the criteria for laser treatment uh, were modified with a study that was published uh, about five years ago, the ETROP study, the early treatment for of ROP study, which showed that there's a benefit to to treating earlier, so we don't wait as long, um, and that has reduced the chance of progression to retinal detachment. And um, the other thing is that we have even newer treatments in cases that are very severe. We now have uh, anti-vascular and acetyl growth factor drugs, uh, which are drugs that, that block those growth factors that cause the abnormal 
proliferation that I mentioned. And these drugs are now being used uh, for very severe uh, forms of ROP, the ones that are very posterior uh, in zone one. And I was part of a uh, multi-center randomized prospective trial that was funded by the National Institute of Health. Uh, I'm sorry, not funded, but, but authorized by, by the National Institute of Health and the FDA. Um, and that study showed a major benefit to uh, intervention with this drug called Avastin um, in those very severe cases. Uh, now, there's, there's still some babies that, that do go on to retinal detachment. It's still happening occasionally. Uh, and, and that's partly because the NICUs are, are getting better and better at sustaining smaller and smaller kids so that now it's not unusual for me to see a kid who was born at 22 weeks uh, post-conception who survives and who, you know, uh, you know with birth weights under 500 grams, it's not unusual for those kids to survive and get supported in the NICU. And so those kids are at particularly high risk for severe ROP. So it's becoming more severe, but definitely, um, you know, we're, we're getting better and more sophisticated at, at preventing and managing it early. And so the cases that go on to late retinal detachment surgery are much far, far fewer and, and, and and uh, you know uh, now uh, you know it's it's just uh, maybe once or twice a month that I I go to the operating room with such a case. Whereas before, when I first came to Los Angeles, it seemed like we were doing five or six a week. And um, you know, although I, I do enjoy ROP surgery, obviously I would rather uh, be out of business and not not have to do those cases and and prevent them. Uh, so we still get a lot of cases referred from um, other countries uh, like Mexico and South America and, and Asia and so forth, but we are making a concerted effort to educate those, uh, those physicians uh, in terms of prevention as well. And, I think it's, uh, great. it's really great that you're doing it. I know you've been traveling to <laughs> India and China teaching the doctors there. Uh, let, let's yeah. talk about uh, uh, diseases that do affect the cone region of the retina. I know we, we do have conditions such as juvenile macular degeneration, cone dystrophy. We have uh, Best disease and others. And, and a lot of these types of conditions that do affect the cone cells these children aren't what I would say, quote, born with it. Uh, the vision starts to deteriorate at a at a little bit later age. Is that is that right? Yeah, um, that's true. The, there 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 are many forms of uh, sort of juvenile macular degeneration uh, in which uh, the child. Uh, most of, most of these conditions are, are associated with some uh, metabolic derangement in the retina, so that the way the retina uh, the, the way the, the retina processes information is affected, and it can be selectively affect the cone or the rod cells. But most of the problem ones are related to the cone cells, and and uh, these conditions can 
show signs of progression over time. You know, when the child is born, they can have relatively normal vision. And then, they, you know, with time, uh, they can start to lose some of their central fixation uh, vision. And, of course, as the child grows older, they're more and more dependent on that reading vision, and so it becomes more obvious that there's a problem uh, at hand. Um, you know, some of the, the, the common conditions uh, would include uh, juvenile retinoschisis, which is um, the most common form of juvenile macular degeneration. That's an X-linked condition, meaning that it put, it's on the X, the, the, the abnormality of the, the retinous schistin protein is on the X chromosome, uh, meaning that females are not affected by this condition, but they're carriers and their sons can be affected, males can be affected. Um, and with that condition, uh, there's, there's loss of the retinous schistin protein, which is a, uh, a protein that, that's responsible for um, sort of as part of the glue that holds the, the retina together, the nine layers of the retina together. And, and, and so the retina tends to, to form uh, cavities or, or it tends to split. And that, that term, retinoschisis, means splitting of the retina. And splitting can occur um, in the central... Uh, macula, and over time, they can lose, um, you know, optimal central vision. Fortunately, it's not so bad that they completely lose their reading ability. Usually, the acuity drops to about 2040, 2050. Uh, but with time, there can be progressive uh, uh, degeneration of the photoreceptor and also the pigment epithelium underneath it. So, um, you know, there can be uh, sort of loss, progressive loss, slow progressive loss of function and structure. Um, Condition, Dr. Twanzi, is there surgery that uh, you as a retina specialist that you can do surgery to try to put the retina back together as it's splitting? Yeah, actually, that's one of the conditions uh, uh, that I've been very interested in, and uh, we have done a couple of, uh, you know, surgical, we've, we've developed a couple of surgical procedures for, to treat that disorder. Um, uh, there, are, there are a couple ways that those children lose vision. If, uh, if the splitting of the retina occurs in the periphery of the retina, that it's affecting more of the, the rod uh, cells, um, the retina can actually become quite separated. Uh, that splitting can become very bullish or extensive, and it can progress rapidly. And so that's called bullish juvenile retinoschisis, or it's also known as malignant juvenile retinoschisis. And the splitting can lead to a very rapid loss of visual field, usually within very small children. And genetically, those children who get that problem are a little bit different than the rest. They tend to have mutations in, in uh, a specific part of the gene uh, called exon 4. And um, 
that splitting can be stopped uh, with a surgical procedure where we actually uh, do a vitrectomy. We, we go inside the, the jelly cavity of the eye and we remove the vitreous gel and uh, we, we collapse the schesis cavity and fill the eye with an oil bubble to hold it in position. And that, that can uh, stop the progression of visual field loss in many of these small children. And I have, you know, a couple of dozen patients who've had that procedure in our practice. Now, that's one procedure. The, the other procedure, which is um, a little bit more controversial, and um, but it has worked, is um, to try to prevent the splitting that can occur in the central macula uh, area. With that type of, that splitting that occurs in the central macula is not, what I was saying is that um, the, there's an interplay between the vitreous gel and the retina, and, and, and especially in certain macular diseases where there are cysts that tend to form within the, within the macula, as in retinoschesis, and those cysts may be uh, exacerbated by, by vitreous traction, and so one can cleave uh, that traction by removing the vitreous gel and, and, and uh, you know, easing the forces on the macula. And sometimes we even use enzymes to help uh, dissolve the, the interface between the, the gel and the retina. Yeah, what about other kinds of conditions, such as uh, Stargardt's disease and cone degeneration? Uh, I understand that there have been some new clinical trials of studies that may help people who have either Stargardt's disease and that there's also other what are called neuroprotective studies, perhaps for people who have cone degeneration. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, is... is um it's another condition that um, is associated with macular degeneration, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a condition where there's a buildup of this lipofusion waste product uh, uh, underneath the retina, and it has to do with the, the retina's ability to uh, metabolically, um, you know, take care of its waste products, and that's a that's a more Rare condition. It tends to be. Uh, it tends uh, not to be familial because it's autosomal res- recessive. In other words, uh, in order for it to, to manifest, both both parents need to contribute um, a bad gene to the child. So it's unlikely uh, that that it would be passed on uh, from one generation to another. Um, and that condition, that, that's, that's a surgical condition because uh, anatomically there isn't a problem, but uh, there, there can be uh, progressive uh, loss of, of macular function and also loss of visual field uh, with, with time. And so this is more of a metabolic condition, and so... It's more uh, amenable to uh, interventions like gene therapy, where we like to identify the abnormal gene that's in that particular patient 
and uh, and then be able to replace it uh, to introduce that gene into the cells to restore the metabolic activity. And it turns out that there's a there's a variety of gene defects that have been uh, you know identified in many of these diseases, and there's there's quite a bit of overlap between. Uh, for example, Stargardt's disease, and we mentioned cone dystrophy. Well, cone dystrophy um, has a variant that shares uh, genetic, the same gene abnormality with Stargardt's disease and, and has some, some of the, the macular features that Stargardt's has. And it has other variants of cone dystrophy that are more similar to retinitis pigmentosa. So there's a lot of interesting uh, molecular genetics that's being discovered, and the most promising the most promising treatment, in my opinion, is that that, that has to do with gene therapy. If one if one can identify the abnormal gene and then uh, be able to replace that gene, and and the way that works is that the gene is is attached to a virus. And that virus is introduced into the into the eye, usually through an injection, and then that virus infects the the retinal cells, and it transfers the gene into the cells, and then that transfer of the gene now allows the metabolic machinery inside the cell to function more normally. Yeah, we know that uh, last year or two years ago was the first time with. Lieber's congenital amaurosis, a gene therapy, was very successful. Um, you know, we have about uh, 10 to 15 minutes left, and we're going to go ahead and open it up to questions for the callers for Dr. Twanzi. So if anybody has a question, if you could unmute your phone by pressing star 6 and ask a question to Dr. Twanzi about uh, any, any retinal condition or a student or child you may, you may be working with.